Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Okay, good evening. It is wonderful to be with you tonight, and um, I'm very excited to be able to study together with you. So this past Tuesday was Lagba Omer the 32nd, 33rd day of the Omer, and it's kind of a celebration. And I know that Lagba Omer has passed. However, there are two pieces that I would like to share with you about Lagba Omer uh, because they have messages that are very relevant to us uh, going forward. So um, I'd like to share these two pieces. I mentioned earlier this week Actually, on Lagba Omer, on Tuesday, I spoke. And, and by the way, everything that we're doing is all recorded. So you can find the recordings of, of all the sessions, all the classes, everything uh, online, on YouTube, on, our, on Facebook, on our website, in our emails. So, But I mentioned earlier this week that Lagba Omer is very mysterious it's very unclear what are the origins of it, what are the reasons for its significance. And I mentioned the passage in the Talmud that comes closest to discussing it, but does not. And the Talmud tells us, the Gemara Masech, the Yavamas tells us, that between Pesach and Shavuos, 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva died between Pesach and Shavuos. Now, in that passage of the Talmud, there is no mention of the date of Lagba Omer. It's just not mentioned. In fact, the date of Lagba Omer as something uh, uh, special is not mentioned until centuries later. And so, for example, one of the earliest occurrences, the earliest occurrence is the late 1300s, but one of the earliest is Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Law, writing in the early 1500s, and he writes as follows, She'az Pasku Milamus. He writes that on Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer, the dying of Rabbi Akiva's students, which had started at Pesach, stopped even though from the passage of the Talmud itself, it appears that the deaths took place between Pesach and Shavuos, the whole span, but Rabbi Cairo's understanding is it was up until, which is about two weeks, two and a half weeks before Shavuos, that's when the dying, the deaths stopped. Okay, so the deaths stopped, fine. So I can understand that on Lagba Omer, if that's true, that there should be no avelus, no mourning. So uh, the practices that we had about uh, uh, mourning, not listening to music, and not getting haircuts, we're still not getting haircuts this year, but and those practices of mourning, okay, I understand they would cease, according to Rabbi Cairo, on Lagba Omer. But the question is, fine, no mourning. But, but why celebrating? And in fact, the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Isolis says, writing at about the same time, Umar bin Boksa Simcha, 
and we also add a little bit of joy. It's a, a, a celebration. And as we know today, it's become quite a significant celebration. Of course, this year was quite dampened and hampered in the celebration, but uh, we celebrate. Why celebrate? What is there to celebrate of the fact that we just finished 24,000 funerals? That doesn't sound like a reason to celebrate. So on Tuesday, I shared one answer, which I think is a really important answer, but I'd like to share something different tonight. There are two commentators. One is the Prichadash, the other is the Chida. And the two commentators explain that the reason for celebrating on Lagba Omer is not because of the part of the story that I already told you. It is because of the next passage in the Talmud. Because the passage goes on to say, reading from the Talmud, so 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva died from Pesach, now we understand, until Lagba Omer. 24,000 Torah scholars. Says the Talmud, Vahaya ha'olam shameim. The world was desolate. I don't know anything about the population numbers of the Jewish people at that time. But even today, I mean, can you imagine, God forbid, God forbid, 24,000. And, and again, 24,000 Torah scholars. What would happen to Torah? How many Torah scholars are there in Canada right now? How many Torah teachers are there? How many Torah scholars are there? What would happen if the 24,000 most knowledgeable Jews, God forbid, in Canada suddenly passed away? What would happen to the future of the Jewish people in Canada? The world was desolate. Until what Rabbi Akiva did was, he went, he went to find new students. And he started to teach them. Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon, and Rabbi Elazar. He started over again with five new students. The Haim, Haim, Hamidu, Torah, Osashah. And through those five, Torah was transmitted to the next generation. Torah was in danger of being untransmitted because almost everyone who was knowledgeable in Torah had died. And through those five, think of how precarious it was. From only five, Torah was transmitted to the next generation and flourished and flourished. That, says the Chidah and the Prichadash, that's the reason for the Simcha, for the joy. So again, let, just, let that sink in just for a moment. How many funerals were there? If you work it out from Pesach to Lagba Omer, 24,000, not counting Shabbos and Yom Tov, there had to have been about 800 funerals a day. 800 funerals? What 
a, 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 a catastrophe to the Jewish people. Imagine that. And imagine what Rabbi Akiva went through. Rabbi Akiva, who was the greatest sage of his time, and to have 20, first of all, to have 24,000 students, and then to have 24,000 students die. Imagine what Rabbi Akiva went through in that experience. Now, last Friday, I had the opportunity to speak with some of you about Rabbi Akiva in a different context. And what I'm saying, and that also is recorded and is available in all the places that I mentioned. But what I'm going to share with you now is related to that concept. You have 24,000 students and they all die at one time. Maybe you think to yourself, maybe it's time for a new line of work. Maybe it's time for some other type of effort. This is certainly not working out. On that day, Lagba Omer, when he buried his 24,000th student, Rabbi Akiva started over with five. That's the reason for the joy. That's the reason for the simcha and the celebration. Because Rabbi Akiva teaches us a Jew doesn't give up. A Jew doesn't stop doing what is right. A Jew forges ahead. And it seems like an almost superhuman effort. It is. But that's what we're called upon. And that's the model that Rabbi Kiva has for us. And here's the truth. Every single one of us will face our own version of, God forbid, losing 24,000 students. Every one of us at some point will face our own version of our world collapsing. We will face at some point our own version of everything that we have worked for is destroyed. And we are called upon when that happens to remember the reason for celebrating Lagba Omer, to remember the model that Rabbi Akiva leaves for us. We celebrate on Lagba Omer to remember that at the darkest moment, Rabbi Akiva was able to bring this strength to start over with five, to forge ahead, to strengthen himself, and to start over. And it is a magnificent lesson, not easy to live up to. And we may very well fall short but at least to have the model of Rabbi Akiva and at least to understand what Lagba Omer is coming to enable us to be able to do in our own lives. I want to share with you a second piece about Lagba Omer. This is from Sivan Rahab Meir. And another approach, a different approach to the significance of Lagba Omer has to do with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, sometimes referred to by the acronym of his name, Rashbi, 
Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, by the way, Rabbi Shimon was one of the five students of Rabbi Kiva with whom he started over. And today, and certainly in the last number of decades, I mentioned this on Tuesday, the largest celebration of Lagba Omer, the most exuberant celebration of Lagba Omer as a major day is among those Jews who connect Lagba Omer to Shimon Bar Yochai. Now, I do have to mention this. I'm sorry to have to say this. This year, in spite of the requirement to separate and be distant and not to congregate, there were hundreds of Jews in various places who violated those rules, and it is a terrible thing that they did. They violated terrible sins in the Torah, they broke laws, they desecrated God's name. There is no excuse whatsoever for those people who celebrated Lagba Omer in a manner that violated self-help and safety concerns. No excuse whatsoever. But in normal years, the most exuberant celebration relates to Shimon Bar Yochai. How? Well, that also is not clear. Some say it was his yard site. Some say there's a famous story in the Talmud where Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son went into a cave for 13 years. It's a whole long story. And he came out of the cave on Lagba Omer. Some say that it was on Lagba Omer that Shimon Bar Yochai revealed the secret teaching of the Zohar, of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism. That's a controversial subject. Did Shimon Bar Yochai actually author the Zohar or it was, did it come, was written later? That's a controversy I don't want to get into right now. But Shimon Bar Yochai clearly is associated with his subject of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism. So what is Kabbalah? What is Jewish mysticism? So if you go to our website, I have a 10-part lecture series on Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, and I urge you to listen to it to understand at least an introduction, a brief introduction to what is Kabbalah and what it is that Shimon Bar Yochai taught. But for now, let me just say just in a couple of sentences. Kabbalah understands that in this world, there is Olam Hanigla, the revealed world, the physical, visible world. We see each other, we touch things, we taste things. And then, corresponding to that visible world, there is Olam Hanistar, a hidden world, a secret world, that corresponds to that revealed world. So that everything in the outer, physical, visible world is actually connected to something spiritual, going back, going back, going back to God. And in fact, everything is connected to God and expresses some aspect of God. So what that means is that every person, every mitzvah, every narrative in the Torah, every object in the world somehow reflects and is connected back to God and everything is connected because everything goes back 
and reflects something about God. In very, very simple terms, what it means is everything in the world, every person, every object, every idea, every situation, there is a deeper element to it beyond what we can see and hear and feel and smell. And ultimately, it's connected back to God. What is so special about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that in a normal year, 500,000 Jews will flock to his burial place on Lagba Omer in Meron, the northern part of Israel? Half a million Jews. What is the connection that they have? The secret is that he discovered for us that there is a secret. Shem Yechai teaches us, even if you don't understand Kabbalah, even if you don't understand the brief description that I gave you, and I want to just confess to you, I don't completely understand what I told you. Even if you don't understand it, at the very least you understand there's more to this world than what we can see. There's something else. It goes beyond. It's deeper than we thought. What Shimon Bar-Yochai gives us is this sense that we are not only physical animals. This world is not only a material stage. There is something deeper. There is a secret. There is a connection. And even if we don't understand it, what we can take from Lagba Omer is to understand there's more than we see. There is more than we know. What is evident to us is not all that there is. And that is a tremendously important lesson to learn from Lagba Omer. Okay, so this week's Torah portion is the double Parsha of Bahar and Bechukosai. And by the way, with this Parsha, we finish the book of Ayikra, Chazak, the third book in the Torah. I'd like to share with you two pieces relating to this week's Parsha. And if you have your Chumash, in the stone Chumash, you could turn to page 698. In the stone Chumash, the blue Chumash that we use at Adath, page 698, I'm looking at in Vayikra, the Parsha Bahar, chapter 25, verse 17, Pasuk 17, in the stone Chumash, page 698, near the bottom of the page, Yudzayan 17, the Pasuk says, Velosonu ish es amiso. Velosonu ish es amiso. A person should not oppress another. V'yaresa melokecha, you shall fear God, k'ani Hashem because I am the Lord your God. What does it mean? Losonu ish es amiso, do not oppress another person. Says Rashi. Rashi says, quoting the Talmud, this is referring to onoas dvarim, oppressing someone else with speech. 
hurtful speech. Person is not supposed to say nasty things about another person or harmful things or things that cause another person pain. That is onaz dvarim, causing harm through words. Now, we have a source I've quoted to you many times before called Sefer HaChinuch, which was written by Rabbi Aharon of Barcelona centuries ago. And he goes through the 613 mitzvos and he gives an explanation of each of the 613 commandments. It's a very important source. Listen to what he says about this mitzvah of Losonu. He says, this mitzvah includes not to cause pain to others through words, not to shame them. And then he says, let me give you guidelines in how to apply this mitzvah. He says, this does not mean, this does not mean if somebody comes to you and criticizes you and insults you and says nasty things to you, this does not mean that you should not answer back. It's impossible for a person to be like a stone remaining unmoved. And furthermore, if someone were to insult you or verbally abuse you and you were to remain silent, it might appear that you were acknowledging the truth of what that person is saying. A person is not required to suffer damage inflicted by another. A person is permitted to save themselves. And similarly, with words, someone accuses me and it's not true. I have the right, I should, defend myself with words and protect myself with words. However, says Rabbi Aaron of Barcelona. What the Torah is commanding here is don't do it with an argument. Don't do it with an insult. Don't speak the same way that you were spoken to. Losonu means even if someone wrongly criticized you or bothered you or insulted you or, or accused you of something, you can stand up for yourself. You can defend yourself but answer back sweetly and pleasantly. Do not answer back with anger. Obviously, that takes a lot of self-control. That's hard to do. But then he adds the following. However, he says, there are some people whose piety is of such a degree that they do not even allow themselves to answer in any way an insult or a criticism in order to make sure that their anger does not overcome them. Concerning them, our sages say, those who are insulted but do not insult in turn, who are humiliated but do not answer back, concerning them it is written, and those who love God are like the sun rising in its splendor. Okay. That's a really difficult thing, to be insulted and not answer back. That's really difficult. Now, that's Rabbi Aaron of Barcelona. Now listen to the insight of Rabbi Yehuda Amitai. 
Rabbi Yehuda Amital says from this passage we learn a very important principle in how God looks at human beings. God does not ignore a person's human tendencies. God does not require that a person suppress their feelings in order to fulfill God's will. God does not require a person who is insulted to remain quiet. It's human nature to respond, and it's okay to respond. What God says is, okay, it's human nature to respond. You have a right to respond, but here's how I want you to respond. Calmly. Don't descend to how the other person is speaking. Do it calmly. Losonu, don't cause more harm through the words that you're going to say. And even concerning that pious person who is able to summon superhuman self-control and not respond at all, listen again to the words of Rabbi Aaron of Barcelona. He doesn't say that he doesn't feel anger. It's not normal, it's not natural for a person not to feel anger when they are accused and insulted. It's just that this person has even more self-control not to respond at all. But to feel? God understands we're human beings. The Kotzka Rebbe, Rebbe Menachem Mendel of Kotzk, famously said, listen, God is not looking for angels who are perfect, who are never tempted, who have no shortcomings. God has plenty of angels. He doesn't need us to be angels. God needs us to be human beings, imperfect, tempted with shortcomings, who sometimes give in to our baser instincts. And then for us to try to overcome that temptation and to try to lift ourselves above our base intentions, that's what God is looking for. So I want to share with you a story. I've shared this a couple of times. But the truth is, I need to hear it again. And perhaps you can benefit from hearing it, even if you've heard it before, but perhaps being reminded of it, especially now, would be helpful. But it would be helpful for me, so please indulge me. Benjamin Zander was the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. And in 2008, he gave a TED Talk. (coughs) (coughs) And at the end of the TED Talk, he told this story. He said, I learned how important words are and the difference it makes in what we say and what we don't say. I learned this from a woman who survived Auschwitz, one of the rare survivors. She went to Auschwitz when she was 15 years old. Her brother was eight. Their parents had been murdered. And this woman tells the following story. 
We were in the train going to Auschwitz. And I looked down. She's talking about herself and she's 15, her brother who is eight. I looked down and I saw my brother's shoes were missing. I said, why are you so foolish? Can't you keep your things together? It was the way an older sister might speak to a younger brother. Unfortunately, it was the last thing I ever said to him because I never saw him again. He did not survive. And when this woman came out of Auschwitz, she did survive. When this woman came out of Auschwitz, she made a vow. And she said, I walked out of Auschwitz into life and I made a vow. And the vow was, I will never say anything that couldn't stand as the last thing I ever say. That's powerful. That's a lesson that we need to learn from our Parsha, from these words, Lo sonu ish es amito. I will never say anything that could not stand as the last thing I ever say. I want to share one last piece. Returning to Sivan Rahab Meir tonight. So if you turn, please, to page 702 in your Chumash. If you don't have it, don't worry. Just a short passage. Page 702. Pasuk number 35, the middle of the page. It's uh, Vayikra chapter 25, verse 35. Pasuk Lam and Hey. The Torah says as follows. V'chiyamuch achicha umata yado imach. If your brother, your fellow, your brother, your sister, your fellow, another person becomes impoverished, and his means of supporting himself falter. He's not able to support himself and his family. The hechazaktabo, you shall support him. You shall strengthen him. Both ger v'soshav, whether he is a citizen or a stranger, and he should be able to live with health and with what he needs, just like you need to live. Rashi points out an interesting thing. The Torah does not say, if your fellow becomes poor, you should give him money to support himself. The Torah does not say that you should help him if he becomes poor. The Torah says, and you should support him. What's the significance of that specific word? Lahachazik means to support, to raise up, to brace. 
Why not just say help? Why not just say be generous? So Rashi gives the following explanation. Rashi says, Don't wait until he has fallen into poverty. Once he falls into poverty, it will be very, very difficult to raise him back up. Ella, but rather, Chazkehu Mishas Mutas Hayad. You should start to strengthen and support him as he is slipping into poverty before he reaches it. To what can this be compared? Now, obviously, I'm going to make a comparison to a situation that involves an animal. I don't mean, God forbid, to compare a human being to an animal, but it's just a metaphor. If you can picture to yourself, Rashi says, a donkey is carrying a load. If the donkey's load starts to slip and it falls down on the ground, it might take two or three people to lift it back up and put it back up on top of the donkey. But if at the moment it starts to slip, but it's still on top, someone comes to assist, one person can be able to just support it, put it back in place before it falls. Says Sivan Rahab Meir, it is so difficult to see the first cracks, the first slippage, the beginning of the problem. It's easy to miss the moment when mending the situation would be so much easier than after it has fallen. But that's what Rashi is telling us. In interpreting these words, Rashi is pointing out the unusual, <coughs> excuse me, the unusual nature of this word, the Hechazaktabo, in order to illuminate for us that what the Torah is teaching us is don't wait until it falls. Don't wait until he becomes poor. Intervene as soon as there's slippage. Early detection is needed. And this is such an important point in the way that we work with ourselves and with others in every area of life, not just financial. In every crisis in life, there's a problem that a couple is having in their marriage. Don't wait, God forbid, until they're not speaking to each other, they're fighting, they're arguing. It could be that the marriage, God forbid, is over. As soon as there's a problem, as soon as there's an indication of a lack of communication or a lack of understanding or whatever it may be, that's the moment to intervene when it can still be saved. God forbid there's a problem with a child going off in a path that's not the right path. Don't wait until, God forbid, the child is completely out of, out of the picture and it could be too late. But at the first instance of seeing something that's not proper, figure out the right way with love and compassion to bring the child to the right path. And with physical health, it's so obvious. Don't wait until, God forbid, the situation is already dire 
And now it's even questionable if it can be fixed, if it can be healed. As soon as there's a problem, attend to it. Be proactive. Don't wait until it gets too bad. The Torah's commandments should make us aware about ourselves and others and try and detect problems when they first emerge. And especially now, we are undergoing overwhelming struggles and challenges. We need to be looking carefully for ourselves and for others as cracks start before they progress to get help and to give help while it can still be successful. My friends, I want to wish you a great Shabbos. Review the Parshios this week. I look forward to seeing all of you very soon.